going on with this? Oh, battery. Doc, do we have any batteries? That's why. We don't have any. I thought there's none in your purse, Doc. No. <clears throat> Let's start. Um, any prayer requests this morning? Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, um, especially for the gift uh, of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us, your actual life. Um, extraordinary thing. How sad the whole world doesn't know. You offer us your life and a share in your divinity. Um, it means something divine is growing. That's our faith. Um, it won't be real in us without our faith. Um, if it's taken for granted, it, it dies. Strengthen us in our faith to know that, that something divine. What a huge responsibility. So much easier to overlook it or dismiss it. Um, hard thing. What a great gift. Help all of us to grow into it, strengthen us in our faith. And all the work that we're doing, um, help us to see more clearly um, what's, um, what's at the heart of our faith. Um, help us to be able to take it, to make a defense of it to the world. Um, and all things help us to love better than we do, to bring you to what we do. The words of Paul this morning, um, a gentleness, um, um, patience, a bearing um, of one another. Help us all to do that um, and still have the courage to bring your truth to what we do. Hard to do means bringing what seem opposites together. Um, to be bold and bring you to the world and still be patient and forbearing. Um, help us all to do that. Ask for a special um, grace on, or grace, grace, sorry, Gail. Gail, sorry. For Gail, the loss of her mother, Mary. Mary. Um, receive Mary into your kingdom. Um, forgive her her sins. If there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers help. Um, <laughs> the great gift of our church is that we're not alone, that all around us are people helping us. Help us to know that, to be open to it. Um, uh, let our prayers feed her through purgatory. There's a time there. Let her know the joy of being in your presence, looking upon your face. The great joy of it. Be with Gail, um, let the passing of her mom be um, an occasion for gladness, to turn her to you, to turn over to you, and to be strengthened in her faith to do that. Let it be so for all of us in our struggles, particularly with those that we love. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. Hey, um, just a. It's not working. No batteries. Sorry. There were no batteries there.
you take a look at, oh, it may have been in the other purse talk. I, I think I put some in there once, I'm not sure. Um, uh, just a note about schedule of the reading. Next, next week we will finish Milton. Seems like we just started, but. So 11 and 12 next week, that'll be it. The, the following week, Doc, we were going to have that week, right? And then wait for the, the, the service of lights? Yes, let me pull if, if I've got my memory on, I'm not sure, but we'll finish Milton next week, and then I'm going to take a week to put all of him together and try to set some things up next to Dante, even though we won't have read Dante by then. But I'm, I'm, um, I'm actually going to read some things from Dante just to get everybody started so you can read him. But 11 and 12 next week, the week after, we will have, um, I'll, I'll do an overview. I'm going to put the Protestant Catholic world together. Um, the reason I'm going to do that then is because I don't want to get too far away from Milton. I'm going to do it again after Dante. But I don't want to wait until we're done with Dante because Dante is going to take a long time. So I'm going to give this brief overview. Um, I'll read some things from Dante. Even, even if you haven't read him, because um, I really, I really want to pull things together before we leave Milton. And then I think we take a break because I think it's the, there's a prayer service that week, the Monday night can't meet. So we're canceling classes, the, our meetings that week. And then I think it's Thanksgiving. Oh, wait, hold on. That's the prayer service? That's the prayer service. Okay. Then it'll be the week after that that we do the overview. So the 16th we'll do the overview. The following week we won't meet because... That's Thanksgiving. That's Thanksgiving. And then we'll pick up, I think, the week after Thanksgiving. Okay. Can you all pull out your poetry packet? Psalms and one of Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, I'm reading the Shakespeare sonnet just because it it illustrates one of the differences between the two ways of knowing that we're we've been, we were concerned with last week and we'd be concerned with again this week. Um, you, you'll see when we get to it um, what's on my mind there. Um, the first two Psalms, just just a note. The word, the, the, we, we've been reading lyrics, right? Every week since we started. Sh lyrics are short poems, right? Almost all the lyrics that we've read that I can remember are modern. They, they belong to the profane order, the secular temporal order. But the origins of the lyric are here in the Psalms. 
So the, the Psalms first make their appearance um, hundreds, hundreds of years before the profane lyrics begin. In, we, we usually think about the beginnings of them in Greece with the Greek lyrics. If you, if you know anything about lyrics, you know that they're generally put to a musical beat. There'll be a certain number of feet, like iambic, what's called a, a um, two-syllable foot that's arising. You go da 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 da. That's an iambic. A trochaic is the worst. Da 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 da. Poems use meters like that, just as musical compositions do. It's a it's a form of measure. So poets writing lyrics hold themselves to a measure in a line. It's what makes the lines musical. That there's this musical element to lyrics as we've seen all along. The Psalms don't use a metrical um, form of measure of foot in their lines, but they do use principles like um, parallelisms and comparisons and counterpoint. They'll set phrases next to each other so that they have a, a sort of faint musical quality to them. And um, you all know what the what the psalm, what instrument the psalms were put to, right? It was what? The lyre, from which we get lyric. So even though people don't think of the psalms as lyrics, in a sense they are. The difference is that lyrics deal with sacred matters. The, the, the concern of all the psalms, all of them, are God. <coughs> The, the psalmist David can be angry, he can be sometimes vindictive, he can be sorrowful, he can celebrate, he can write psalms of praise. I mean, the whole range of our emotional life is there in the psalms. If you've gone through them, you know that every possible kind of anger, humility, shame, um, gratitude, they're all there. So the beginning of the lyric tradition is really here. Okay. When the secular lyric comes into play, it turns from God and it takes the world, everything that goes on in the world, as its subject. So in the Psalms, and this is really interesting, in the Psalms we have one speaker, say David, he's writing the Psalms, one speaker, <coughs> um, but he's speaking for his people. So implicit in the I is a we, always. He's a spokesman for the Israelites in all their trials with Yahweh. Um, in the secular Psalms, you know that each, each poem is usually written by a different poet, and he's got a different object in mind. He could be writing about, he could be Wordsworth, expressing his fondness for nature and the forms of nature, or um, Robert Frost um, writing these poems of, in, the, in the vein of what we call hard pastoral. He writes about all these pastoral experiences, but underneath him there is this very, very, very tough, hard reality. So um, the Psalms um, have only one concern, it's God, and the state of the people in relationship to him. Okay, I'm going to read the just the first two. And it's interesting to, to note in the second one that 
how hard it is for the psalmist to sing a psalm, a song, when he's separated from God, when he's not, when his temple has been destroyed, because the temple is the place where they are closest to God, and where what they express is going to be expressed in the most beautiful kind of harmony, music. Okay. Psalm 127. <clears throat> Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver, quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. I love that psalm. First time I read it, it took me over. If we do anything without the Lord, build a house without him, do our work, go to work, keep the city, whatever. We do it in vain. <clears throat> it's like we're pretending that we can get along on our own without his help. Um, unless we do these things, um, it'll all be a waste. And moreover, children raised in that spirit will be like arrows, um, a source of strength um, that will help a family hold off difficulties. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you've done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. <clears throat> two very different songs emotionally one is sad um, aware of what it's lost because the city that represents that is the image of the heavenly New Jerusalem on earth was destroyed they were taken into captivity um, it's a lament at, um, at, at their loss and and asking for a judgment that those who took it away from them will be destroyed. Um, happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. <coughs> Tough realities there. Um, go to Shakespeare. I, I've already read this for um, before. For those of you who have been doing this for a while. The reason I want to read this this morning is that it, it perfectly illustrates something that we're dealing with in the questions that we took up last week. The difference between idealizing something, um, 
genuinely idealizing it, treating it a certain way in the mind rather than grounding it in reality. Okay? Shakespeare's writing this sonnet aware of the Petrarchan tradition. In the Petrarchan tradition, Petrarch was the great poet that followed Dante. I think he was so inspired by him that he took up a calling. And, and he wrote all of this, this long, what's called a sonnet cycle, all of these lyrics to this woman, Laura, whom he idealized. And because he idealized her the way he did, it, it justified all the great emotions that she aroused in him. The grief, the tempest, the, the frustrations of being turned away or disappointed or joy when he could have anything gratifying. So the, uh, the Petrarchan lyrics tend to be very emotional. They use these um, um, similes of storms and tempests and, you know, um, to show the state of his soul because of his love for this woman. <clears throat> Shakespeare knew that tradition. This is, poets are always writing in a tradition. They're always, a, they show by their poetry what they owe to their tradition, how they stand in it, their gratitude for it, or even their critique of it. And in this case, Shakespeare's critiquing that Petrarchan tradition. Another way of looking at this is it's that an Englishman looking at an Italian and indirectly telling him what he thinks about him. Okay? This is Shakespeare writing a poem about his beloved. <coughs> sonnet 130. You remember the Shakespeare sonnet unfolds by, by four quat three quatrains, four lines, four lines, four lines, four lines, and a couplet. And each of the quatrains has a different rhyme scheme. Okay? Sun, done, red, head, white, light, cheeks, see? So the lines are musical, they're put to a meter, and they rhyme. But there's a great variety, which means the rhymes don't, don't become tiresome. You get three exempla, three different examples of something, and then a, a conclusion, a couplet, that, that makes a conclusion about what he's been writing about. Sun 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Whose love is better, Petrarch's or Shakespeare's? I'm not going to... I'm going to say Shakespeare. He loves her for what she is. And by the way, loving, loving some, I think for Shakespeare, because Shakespeare loved virtue. If you've read his plays, you know how important virtue is in his life for the characters who have it and don't. Loving her for what she is doesn't mean, I think, looking past faults, he would have hoped his wife would have been, or his beloved would have been virtuous, a good woman. But he knew the difference between idealizing something and making making somebody something she's not, okay? 
Um, so, beautiful poem. Okay. Milton. Very, very quickly, um, I want to get back to this major point that we took up last week about the two ways of knowing. Rem uh, remember um, books six, seven, and eight are Raphael's account to Adam of all those things that he could not have known. This is so important. In some ways, the, the, we're about to, to in, the, in books nine and 10, the books we're gonna do today, we're gonna look at what I believe is the moral center of the poem involving Adam in the fall and Adam and Eve in the fall. In one sense, the philosophic, if I can put it that way, or the theological center of the poem is with Raphael. And I want to make that distinction um, because what Raphael does, in a sense, explains what Milton is doing because Milton's doing the same thing. Remember, Raphael came to warn Adam and when he was talking with him, he told him that if he were obedient, he would one day be transformed into a spirit. I think that's so telling. Not a body, or not a person with a body, but a spirit. He would be etherealized. Those were Raphael's words. And Adam's response was puzzlement because he had no idea that he needed to be aware of anything. He was just going to live the way he had been living. So when, when Raphael says, if you're obedient, it raises the question that he might not be. And then Raphael will go on to say, be careful because this, this war has taken place in heaven. Satan is setting out to do something. So in books six, seven, and eight, we get Raphael's account of the war in heaven. That's in six. In seven, we get the creation story. And then in eight, we get Raphael describing some large philosophical matters and Adam recounting his um, um, coming to consciousness after creation. So those are the books we just looked at. Um, <clears throat> um, remember in the war in heaven, we, we saw the, um, the fallen angels gathering, um, and I'll come to the crux of that in a sec, the, the, fallen, the fallen angels gathering, going to war, and the good angels being confused at first and finally getting the upper hand, that's the first day, the second day, um, because Satan creates gunpowder. The, the good angels are put off again, but then they retaliate by picking up mountains and then we're given us pictures of the bad angels and good angels throwing mountains at each other. And the third day, the sun comes and order is restored and he, um, he has such a power that even only using half of his power, um, what he does has the effect of sending the, the, the fallen angels out of heaven. It, the, the description exactly corresponds to Christ when he sent the demons into the, um, the pigs, the swine, and they, and they fall out of heaven, they lose heaven. So in that book, in book six, or yeah, book six, we're taken back to the beginning of the poem. Because the poem begins with the, with the angels just having um, been defeated, okay? So the, the, we pick up the beginning of the poem there, and then um, Raphael goes ahead with his description. Um, one thing before I look at Raphael's method, in book 
eight in the in the Adam creation story, Adam was recalling to Raphael his coming to consciousness and his awareness of the world, and God speaking to him and um, telling him of the goodness of things. It's there that we learn that Adam has this power to name things. The, the, the poets who take poetry seriously look at that as the source of their own callings. Because to name things in the biblical sense is to become one with them. That is, the, you're, you, you know them in the sense that you can name their essences. Nobody, Adam has that power. Um, it was given to him by God. So we, we, we see that that's Adam's great gift, that he can name them, and in naming them, become one with them. Um, Adam expresses his loneliness that he doesn't have a companion, that he's got all these things, but no one with whom he can share them. So God... Um, creates Eve, gives him a helpmate. She, it's clear that she's a helpmate for him. And after he does that, he says to Adam, what makes you make so much of this solitude? What, what we think of as Adam's original solitude. That was his original state. Because he says, I'm, I'm solitary myself. I want to look at this just to go to, I think it's book eight. Just for a second, I want to recall that because it goes so much to what we've been talking about. Line 405. Um, book 8, 405. He's not chiding. God isn't chiding Adam, but it, it's, it's close to that. He's, he's telling him what is he fussing about because look at him. He himself is solitary. Um, about line 405 or so. A nice and subtle happiness I see thou to thyself proposest in the choice of thy associates, Adam, and wilt taste no pleasure, though in pleasure solitary. What thinkest thou then of me, and this my state, seem I to thee sufficiently possessed of happiness or not, who am alone from all eternity, for none I know second to me or like equal much less. Once again, it raises this question of whether Milton is Trinitarian or Arian. Um, if he's not Trinitarian, then Christ, the Son, does not share God's nature in some strange way. Milton sees all lesser creatures ultimately being transformed into something like God, all spirit. It's as if there's a Gnostic quality to what he's doing. Here he makes it clear that God's alone. That there is not an indwelling of persons in the beginning of things as he conceives them. Um, <clears throat> so just a, a brief summary of what happens here. Now I want to go back and pick up where we left off last week because it seems to me that goes to the very center of the poem. Um, sure. Would you rather wait? No, no, go ahead. I, I just... Do you have any thoughts about you know the changing back and forth from you know God being separate from the Son and the Spirit, and then in in Acts where Christ or, or the Son 
acts on behalf of the Father. When he goes into the description of what the Son is doing, it's God that's doing them. So I'm Say that again. Well, okay, like here, clearly there's a distinction in, in the Father and the Son, the Father being solitary. In the, in the first discussion or exchange between the Father and the Son, they are separate entities. And yet when, for example, the Father sends the Son to discharge the uh, fallen angels, right. uh, when, when he describes that, or when, when the Son goes to create Earth, the description of that is then God, not the Son, that the, the, that's doing the actual actions. So in that sense, they, they are essentially one and the same. And I just, it, it, it strikes me as interesting that, that we go back and forth between what, what appears to be something like the Trinity and then something that's clearly not. Yeah. And I just wonder if there's some significance to no, that or I'll, if I'm just me, reading in stuff that's No, I don't there. think you are, Fred. Um, let, let me try to describe it a little bit differently. I mean, correct me here if I'm not getting it, but um, the, the major discussions in Book 3 when um, God, the, fa the Father, sees Satan traveling, taking up his quest, and he and the Son talk, um, they talk as if they're different, <coughs> but related, Father, Son. Um, you mentioned the one in, the, in, in the, the chapters we just got through with where the, the Son is going to take on the rebel angels, um, and again, the Father and Son are different. But the crucial chapter for me, um, that as, as nearly as I can understand this, that clears up what is a confusion sometimes, is the, is the scene in, um, in which the Father calls everybody together and he says, um, this is my beloved son, um, that line that means raised, begotten. This day I begot. Um, what happens in the exchange after that, because the description of what happens is that the Son was the means of creation, so it seems like he's one with the Father. Um, he's not the same as the Father, he's the Son, but he's the means of creation. But in everything that happens after that, it, it seems fairly clear that the son is a, somehow shares in the nature of the angels as if he were created too. Um, it's confusing, but wait, hold on. So when the, when the father says, um, this is who I have, what's that line? What's the word I keep? But, begotten. Begotten. Um, What's said after that, when Satan's talking about that moment, is how can somebody who's one of us be arbitrarily elevated? That fact makes God look arbitrary. The only way that the only way that I think we can understand that is that the Son is different from the Father, and somehow in his nature, as, as being above everything else, he's a means of creation, even though he shares it. Well, I guess it's the verbiage that, particularly in the creation, where, Wait, hold on, Fred, where God dispatches the Son, but then when we're going through creation, 
it immediately goes back to the Genesis version. God, God said, let there be light. It wasn't the sun said, said right, let yeah. there be light. Yeah. God said, let yeah. there be light. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, all I can do is say, hold those things together, but it seems to me one of the most confusing episodes in the book is the one that I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And, and also, it seems to be one of the most illuminating because it makes that distinction that the, the, the sun seems to share a nature with the angels. And, and this may be the Gnostic side of Milton where he thinks that the higher you go, the more you approach this the complete spirit nature of God, so that the Son seems to be different, one with the angels, even though he was the means of it, and God here elevates him. It's interesting here, too, when God says, Behold, this is whom I've begotten. Do you have the passage, John? This whom I've begotten. Um, the angels are present. So this isn't before the creation of the angels. This is with them present. So all of these things suggest that there isn't a trinity of indwelling persons. That there's some, as I, under, as I understand, there's a Gnostic element to Milton that, um, that, that shows um, a gradation of, of spirit whose ultimate source is God. And e- even... So even if the even if the sun is created, sorry, even if the sun is different and there's a father-son, a paternal relationship, it's not an indwelling in essence. In some sense, the relation of father to son almost partakes of a quality of generation, not indwelling. Wait, hold on, Doctor. I want to come. Hold on. Just to make this clear for one second. Hold on. Can I have your, um, think about this for a second. In the Trinitarian understanding of God, this is what happens. I mean, this is our understanding of it. When God conceives of himself, God, that is, in the self-awareness of God, God is all being. There's nothing else but being. There's nothing other than God, okay? There's no other. Evil is not outside of him. It doesn't exist. Evil is a privation. God is all being. When he conceives of himself in an act of self-knowledge, the Father, the God knowing himself, that conception of himself is his son. It's begotten. It shares his nature. It's co-eternal with him. Okay? It shares the same essence. That's why we say one God. So there are two persons now God conceived. Because if God is all being, it can't be a force or an electricity. Or a, it has to be a person. Because he is personhood itself. Okay? He conceives of himself. He knows himself. That's why we talk about the Son as the image of the Father. We associate him with beauty, the image, the likeness. He is the image of God. The love between the two persons is the Holy Spirit, another person. There can only be three. There can't be two sons. There can only be one. There can only be one Holy Spirit, one love between them. So they are indwelling with each other. What makes, what makes the passages so hard that Fred was talking about a second ago. So often when we get Milton, we get them engaging in conversations as if they don't already know what they're going to say. The father says something and the son responds as if it's new to him. And he's telling the father when he says, who's going to do this? The father says, no one unless somebody steps forward. 
In an indwelling, could conversations like that ever take place? I hope it's clear. Absolutely not, because if they're indwelling, there's nothing in one of them the other doesn't perfectly share. So Milton's treatment in all of this invites a sense that God is solitary of a nature, and it seems to suggest that that Christ will be Arian, less than, when the Son takes on human nature. Is that clear? Doc, do you have the line? No, I don't have that line that you're talking about, where he created him. But, um, I think it's in. Where is it? 133. What book? Four? Oh, sorry. Five. Five? Up here, no line, line six hundred five, book five. You have it. Mm-hmm. Hear ye angels; they're all present. This day I have, this day I have begot, whom I declare my only son, and on this holy hill him have anointed. What what sort of? There are two. God, this is. You want to go there? No, 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 no. No, don't be at all. Um, there's two questions here and they're, they're so troubling and according to this it's, it's almost as if Satan has a, an actual ground for his revolt I mean Bill seems to be a voluntarist voluntarism means that people elevate the will above reason there's an element of that St. Gustav's Islam does. There are Islamic people who believe that God can do whatever he wants to do. Even if he has to do evil, he can do that. It's just raising... Our understanding is God can do no evil. He's good. How can he do evil? He can't go against his nature. So here, <clears throat> with Satan, it, it, almost, it, it, almost seems as if he, it seems as if he almost has a ground. That God does something... Absolutely arbitrary. Number one, and then in the the passage we're going to come to shortly when we look at the fall, when Eve falls, Milton has already set up the fall. The looking in the pool, her wanting to go off that morning by herself. I mean, in in some ways, what he's doing is projecting what we know from a fallen world back on an ideal world as if there was something wrong with Eve. Let me put it differently. One, one of the appeals, it seems to me, is, is to her pride. You know, it, Does any pride exist before the fall? I personally, I see pride as one of the consequences of the fall, not one of its causes. How can, how can a woman um, be tempted in a pride when she doesn't have it? So... So two things, either, either Satan somehow pulls it out of her, which is plausible, or the temptation took a different form. And the reason I'm raising this is so often the way people read Genesis after Milton is through Milton's eyes. People tend to see the fall that way. It's not that way. It's a, it's a, more, it's a questionable reading of Genesis. I'm sorry I didn't bring the Bible. I should have been. Anyway, there are these troubling questions because they go back to a metaphysics. 
Is God solitary? Is he Trinitarian? What's the cause of the fall? Is it different from the way Milton does it? Um, did he appeal to some vanity in Eve? If he did, how could she have been vain if she were, when vanity wasn't, didn't even exist then? If it wasn't that, I, this is the game I tried to play a couple of weeks ago. What was the nature of the fall? I, I'm going to come to that in a minute because I'm going to ask everybody for, for a minute. Imagine it differently. If it wasn't pride or vanity, what did Satan do with her? I want to come back. But these are all, seems to me, crucial things that, that take on a greater importance because of what Milton's done with them. Because, and you know this, for 150 years after Milton, the, the English poets idolized him. Finally, he gets critical. The, 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 the poets get critical. Eliot doesn't like him. Pound didn't like him. Eliot's very critical of what he does with language, what he does with theology. But for the longest time, everybody lived under Milton's shadow. He was the great poet, the great Protestant poet. So uh, I want to come back to this thing here. Um, just to review it, because this to me is, it goes to the... There's a difference between the moral center of the poem, it'll be that moment after, at, after the fall, when Eve's been tempted, at, she's, she brings the fruit to him, he eats, the two viciously quarrel, I mean, there's such an anger between them. We see, we see what happens in the nature of the sexual re relationship between a man and a woman because of the consequences of the fall. The, 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 the problems we present to each other as men and women. Um, where is it going? Um, the moral center. Because when finally, when they reconcile, Milton is affirming what he believes are the most essential Christian virtues. And they're not heroic. I want to come to that in a minute, but that's the moral center of the poem in human terms. This is what we as humans have to answer our fall. Okay, I'll come to that. What I'm calling the philosophic or aesthetic center is here because it informs the way Milton did everything. So even though it's not a part of the dramatic action, to me it's the philosophic center. It's the, it's the germ that informs the way he does everything. Is that clear, that distinction? Okay, I want to look at it again. So, remember, Raphael says, when Adam says, what do you mean obedience? Raphael says, um, to help put you on guard, I've got to describe this battle in heaven. So I've got to, I've got to relate to you things that you have no way of relating to. These are invisible spiritual realities, right? Who can see? Which of us has recently seen <laughs> angels fight in heaven? And he says, in order to do that, I have to take corporeal images, physical things. I have to find them in a way to explain, to make clear invisible things. Okay? Is we all clear? That's where we are. Okay. St. Paul said, um, invisible things are known by the things that are made. That's St. Paul. 
we know invisible things through the visible things that are made. So for St. Paul, the way to get to invisible things is through the visible, the corporeal. That's the most natural way to know because we are corporeal creatures. We are not angelic. And that's part of the problem here. We are not angelic. So much about the modern world is Gnostic um, and takes us to our heads. We tend to, as moderns, we tend to live in our heads at the expense of our bodies. It's like we, we don't have the humility to accept our lowly nature. So there's two different ways of knowing here. What's the difference between starting with ideas in our head or with things available to our senses? What's the difference? Okay. Um, now remember, Plato said, because everything in the world is constantly in motion, changing, we can't have knowledge of material things. He looked on material things as having a quality of um, depravity, a loss. Um, he called the body the prison house. I mean, that's how negative he was about material causes. Under the Platonic regime, the medieval regime, there were no sciences, there were new sciences because the Middle Ages were largely Platonic. Okay? It isn't until Aristotle reappears in the West, 9th century, roughly 9th, 10th, and 11th, that he comes back and affirms material causes because he starts with lowly things. And we've got the Copernican Revolution coming shortly after that and physics. All the modern sciences have their beginnings there. Okay? So Plato said, you can't know things because things are constantly in flux. They're constantly shifting. To have any knowledge at all, you have to know the forms of them. For Plato, the forms existed in some supersensible world, unchanging, eternal. That was the only real knowledge. Everything else he called down here was doxa, opinion, not real knowledge. And you remember this from this, sorry, this is philosophy, sorry. This is, goes so much to what we're doing. Be patient with me for a minute if you can. Um, remember Socrates said that the gods said of him that he was the wisest man in the world. He went around asking everybody and trying to find out why the gods would have said that of him. And he discovered that if the gods were real and truthful, and he believed that they were, that the only reason they could have said that is because he knew that he didn't know things. He admitted his own ignorance. And the proof of that is he would go around talking with people and asking them if they knew justice or beauty or truth or whatever it was. And every time he got into a discussion with somebody uh, and would ask people questions, he discovered that they really didn't know what they claimed to know. They couldn't answer them. They couldn't go to an essence, the truth of things, the essence of something. Finally, they got so angry with him that they killed him. He made them so mad at showing their, how proud they were and how ignorant, they really didn't know what they claimed to know, that they took him to court and killed him. That's the, that's the Socratic. So the, one of the great truths that we inherit from Plato is this humility, this, our awareness that we don't know what we think we do. 
And the, the whole direction of it should make us more open to eternal things, the unchanging things. Okay? So that's Plato. The only real knowledge we can have is knowledge of the forms because they're unchanging, they're eternal. And for him, they existed outside the world. If you remember the Platonic cave, they were outside. Everything in the cave was shadows and images. Aristotle said, no, no, no. We can know things because their forms are inherent in them. So, if you have a eucalyptus tree and an oak tree, they're different. Then if they're different, how do we know that what they share in common is their treeness, their essence, right? They're both trees. How do we know that unless we get past our senses because our senses said oak, eucalyptus, they're not the same thing. They're different. Our senses say two different things. Our mind can abstract from what our senses give to them. Our mind can get to an essence. So according to Aristotle, all natural things can be known. Their forms are in them. Now, if you take a look at that sheet, not now, but the sheet on epistemology, take, a, take that home and read it because it's really, it's really important. On the back of it, I, I give two questions from St. Thomas that are Aristotle's and St. Thomas's answer to Plato. And to me, they're to show the, <laughs> the extraordinary power of Thomas's mind and the rationality of it. So take a look at those. Anyway, Aristotle said, we can know the forms of things. And we can begin with common things and learn the, the truth about more universal things through the, the ladder of being. We can start with ordinary things and we can come to being itself. And he takes that subject up with what the book that's called The Metaphysics. So Aristotle says um, we can start with ordinary things to learn to see the form of it. And then we can, by analogy, we can go to higher and higher things that possess greater and greater degrees of universality in them till we get to the most universal things of all, act, potency, God, okay? So we've got two radically different ways of seeing things. Now I wanna to get to Milton. I wanna to go to Milton now, but before I do, is, is this clear? I know this is somewhat philosophical, and it's probably not the, you know, it seems a, a shot from Milton to this, but two very, very different ways of relating to the world. <clears throat> its relevance here, I think, is really important. But any questions? Yeah, I think the only danger is you're going from particulars to universals. That's induction. That's very dangerous. Induction. Induction. In logic is, induction. It's fraught with all kinds of problems. Yeah. But it's real. I mean. Yeah, I mean, induction is useful and can work, but. All yeah, so is deduction, by the way. So is no, dedu no, deduction is much more, uh, how should I say it, uh, logical or, or truthful. I don't know. Not right hope. Words, but uh, it's a much safer way. 
Yeah, I'm going to, I don't think so, Don, but let me just offer this without going into it. Let me just offer a thought. Induction is the way of most modern sciences. You start with your senses and you go to something and you, and, and Don's right. You know, if, if you just keep looking at a series of things, it doesn't lead to a necessary conclusion. It can rain and rain and rain and rain or whatever, you know, you can eat mushrooms and mushrooms and mushrooms. Those are all inductive. You're learning from concrete things. But in itself, a process of induction doesn't get you to a, a, a definite conclusion. You can, you can make a hypothesis and try to prove it. So there's a danger. There's also a danger in deduction because deduction can put you in a closed system. All logical systems are deductive. You know, you're in a closed system. It's logical. You can move from one thing to another. The, truthfully speaking, they, they should work in tandem. They don't always, unfortunately. Um, in, in a, in, because we're corporeal creatures, we start with our senses, you know, this, this, this happened, this happened. I mean, let me try to make this concrete. You're a parent, your child gets sick and then gets sick and then gets sick again. Um, and you inductively go, now, you know, what happened to this day, what happened? The, and your daughter says, I ate mushroom, I ate mushroom. At some point you have to say, is there something wrong with mushrooms? That's an inductive way of reasoning. You say, what happened each one of these? And you put it together and say, aha, she's been picking those mushrooms in the front yard. There must be something bad in them. Um, now, you can come to a conclusion that, that's um, a reasonable conclusion in a, in a deductive system, like a geometric system or a mathematical system. You can start with a premise and logically come to other conclusions. And within that system, they're unquestionable. The difficulty for us as humans is pulling those things together. I would say every good, every good process of induction should lead to a, a conclusion that will allow you to deduce things, to make deductions from it. And every deductive system, if, it, if it's worth anything, it should help us relate back to reality, to concrete things, because we're corporeal creatures. Here, I just want to, um, I want to get back to Milton. Where is Fred coming back? Yeah, um, yeah, I don't want him to miss this. Um, here, let me go to let me go to Milton quick. Here's the problem with Milton, or one of them. Um, take a look at some of the lyrics we've had just for a second. In the wind hover. In the wind hover. In the wind hover, <laughs> we start with a bird. Very concrete, real thing. Yeah. Is that where we're left? Or do we see something eternal in that bird? Yes, we do, don't we? So for Hopkins, he starts with a concrete thing, and in that concrete thing, he reveals something eternal. The wind hover images the crucifixion. The plower, the farmer plowing, the fire going out. All of those things by analogy, by analogy, reveal another world. So here, we, we learn of invisible things through the things that are made. It's St. Paul. That's St. Paul again. By analogy, I hope that's clear. In supernatural love, we've got an image of a four-year-old girl pricking herself. 
Is that all there is? I, gun, I mean, every time I've done that, I go, who cares? Four-year-old girl pricks herself. How many of us have experiences like that without ever thinking there's something more going on here? I've been saying from the beginning, poets are teaching us to see there's more going on in the concrete thing than we know. We see in both of the supernatural love that something else is taking place there that has a supernatural character. In this way of doing things, is the concrete ever left behind? No. Right? The bird's still there. We see something eternal revealed in the bird. So in here, we see that there's something wonderful in the world. Something extraordinary is going on. Yeah? Okay? Raphael, I've got to find corporeal images to show you something that can't be, you can't know as a human. So in Raphael, when he describes the, the, the rebel angels using gunpowder and the good angels going to war against the rebel angels by picking up mountains and, you know, start. Do we ever get here? And is it ever clear what those mountains are? Because remember, they're metaphors to try to illustrate, to make concrete something that's not concrete, that's not physical. Is that clear? Do we ever know what the mountains are? Does it, do, does it help us get any clarity on what's going on in this invisible world? We don't. So in the way of knowledge, human things, in the way of knowledge, it's like we're going to the world to get something, mountains, gunpowder, and it's deflected. We never get there. Um, so what happens when you start with a supersensory sen reality? Supersensible reality. And go back to our work on the Reformation. What happens when you make the ground and the direction of everything you do in your life your subjective experience of a supersensible reality? Can anybody question you on it? Milton was not troubled by the fact that he and Calvin disagreed on fundamental things. They had very different views on the Eucharist. They could disagree about a lot. Who cares? Why not? What's, what's to prevent anybody whose, whose way of standing the world depends on a supersensible reality from disagreeing from, with somebody else? It's purely private. And look at the effect of it. Watch what goes on in religions today. You have a different view, break off. Another church. Different view there, they break off. How can it not keep breaking off when you're making your subject of reading of something the ground of everything you do, and you're the arbiter of it? You have no reference to the objective world at all anymore. So here, we lose our way in, we lose our way in the natural order. The natural order is depraved. You can't find your way in it. That, that order is removed. And we lose our way by analogy. We, we lose the connection between concrete things and the universal things they point to. Here we, we can't find our way in the natural order anymore. In one world, you're in your head. Whatever abstractions, whatever beliefs you have, in the other, you're grounded in something real. How does that affect the Eucharist? I mean, if you can't, I mean, my God, it, 
For lots of people, it's not there. And yet, I mean, it depends on how you read that passage. When Christ said, I am the living bread, you ate the bread of manna, your fathers ate, I'm giving you the living bread itself. Unless you eat of this, you won't share this divine nature. So the implications of this are, are so deep and so serious. Okay, let me, so that's what we did. Sorry for the long review, but that's where we've been. It's, it's so crucial because, and remember, this is where we live. When Raphael says goodbye, or just before he says goodbye to Adam, he says, this is, I think it's the end of the eight. Verse seven. Yeah, the end of seven. He's just described again the glories of creation and the great things God has done. The hosts of heaven are celebrating this great work of God's. So sung they, and the empyrean rung with hallelujahs. Thus was Sabbath kept, and thy request think now fulfilled, because Adam wanted to know all this, that asked how first this world and face of things began, and what before thy memory was done. From the beginning, that posterity informed by thee might know. If else thou seekest aught, not surpassing human nature, say. This is stunning to me. Um, so long as you ask something that doesn't surpass human nature, <laughs> I'll tell you everything you want to know. What he's just said to him, I have described things to you that existed before your memory. This is creation. And moreover, I've just told you, what has he told him? He told him about the war in heaven, about the nature of the fall, why Satan, why Satan fell. Admiral has this now. It's in his memory, even though he wasn't there to experience it. And he's going to pass it on to posterity. Now here's my question, serious question. What does this do for our reading of, Ge of Genesis? Hmm? It could be the same thing, right? What do you mean? That when we read Genesis, we're reading uh, the version of, of creation that we can understand as opposed to what maybe truly happened. Or in the same sense that Raphael is, is describing to Adam the, fa the, the, the fallen angels. We know they fell. But to truly understand how it occurred is beyond our ability to comprehend. So, except Raphael just made it. It given to it, it was given to us in a form that we could understand and and comprehend the significance of the end. Right. But it probably didn't happen exactly like that. Okay. So Genesis could be the same thing in so. the sense that we get a sense of what creation was, but did it did it. For example, did it happen in seven days? Probably not. I mean, well, God could just make it happen. I mean, in, in God's world, there is no day. Right. Right. And all that is metaphoric. Future are all of the same. So there, there's a metaphoric concept to it to allow us to understand. Right. All of that. I mean, from one perspective, we're here. Those are all. There is no time in eternity. The three-day war, you know, Meta I mean, it's back to the mountains again. Metaphorically, what does that three days even mean? 
you know, do we know? Have, have we been taken to the earthly order to find something there that was a parallel clear enough to throw a light on that? Here, here's the, the serious question for me. What kind of knowledge is Adam passing on to his posterity? Human, angelic. What's he passing on? It's an angelic form of knowledge. Where did he get it? He got it from Raphael. Milton, I mean, Milton is such, I, I gave you that. Does anybody have that flyer that I? No, it's the original flyer. Do you have, no, the flyer. Uh, here. You don't have to. This is in the back of the page where I described Paradise Lost. I end with that quote from Harold Bloom, who's a modern, very important, very Freudian, absolutely Freudian. He, think, he thinks he's the most advanced modern because he takes Freud as the answer to everything and reads literature through Freud. <coughs> so very, very important. So telling about the modern world. He says this about Milton. Um, and even more recently, critics have looked to Milton to explain a radical turn in the development of Western civilization. Harold Bloom, for example, in Anxiety of Influence, wrote, Milton is the central problem in any theory and history of poetic influence in English. Well, truly, I mean, here we are in the modern world. Let me give you just one, 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 here. Let me just give you one example. <coughs> if you take as your starting point a super sensible reality, it can't be verified, it can't be confirmed, um, who's to say that you're not right and somebody else isn't equally? And that you, what, it produ what it leads to is a, is a relativism that what I have in my head is as good as yours. Some, Milton can be a church in itself. He was at the end. You can be a church and suddenly disagree and somebody will have an inspiration and they'll break off and have another church. There's no reference to the natural, we've lost our way into the natural order. We can't turn to it anymore for objectivity. So, what, what we've got is really a case of absolute autonomy, individual autonomy. A person can think what he wants. Look at the abortion issue. The, the basis of the pro-choice movement is a woman has complete autonomy. Nobody can question that. The pro-life movement is saying nobody has that power. You have to surrender part of it in order to protect a life. So here, 300 years away from Milton, we're, it's a Protestant world we're in. America is a Protestant country. It's highly individualistic. We're still seeing the effects of this same principle. Does a human have complete autonomy that he can make the world what he wants? By the way, those of you who are fans of um, Tolkien, Catholic writer, what's the ring that's at the, at the heart of that, that whole story? What's that ring symbolize? Absolute autonomy. Put that on and you can do whatever you want. All the demons want it, I mean the bad creatures, all the humans do because they know if they have it, for opposite reasons sometimes, for very different kinds of reasons, if they have it, 
They can, they can do what they want. They have power. By the way, Tolkien gets that from Plato, just so you know. In Plato's Republic, there's a section towards the end where he has a, a section describing what he calls Gyges Ring. Gyges Ring. You can Google it, Gyges Ring. Put that on and it makes you invisible. Then you can do whatever you want. Why don't you do it um, without the ring? Because you know if you do, people are going to... You can't get away with... You can get away with things with that ring. You, you can do the things with that ring that you would never do without it because people would see you. So it's that invisible world we go into to do those things, to get away with those things that we knew we couldn't get away with publicly. The church calls that sin. I mean, all of us, you know, when, when, when we do something that we know we shouldn't. And if we can hide, well, all the better. That's why we go to confession to open up that secret world that is inside of all of us. So Milton is there at the threshold. He, is, he marks the beginning... The, the Reformation, all the work that we did in the first couple of classes, what's going on in the Reformation is still with us. Think about how tortured it is. Science gives us a ground for some objectivity in what we're doing, but there's things science can't deal with by its very nature. There's things that revelation can give us that, you know, but it's a tortured world we've inherited. Um, these, are, these are some of the these take us back to origins. Let me stop. We've got to get to 9, 10. Any... You tell Debbie to be sure to listen to this. It's too important. Any questions? So does Melvin not have any concept of the confusion that he would bring on by changing um, and making himself the boss instead of God. I don't think Milton would say that. I, I think I think it is this is me. I think in his own mind he loved Christ absolutely loved, loved Christ. A, a very zealous, I mean a, a deep believer, but um, but given his beliefs, um, he, 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 he would have he argued all of this. I mean, if you look at his track, divorce track, defending the basis of, of his defense of divorce. This was, I mean, the traditional understanding up until Milton's track was marriage is forever, better or worse. Milton's argument was um, if a man and woman were, were incompatible with each other, they could get a divorce. That was it. He, he said... In the Bible, because Christ says, whatever God's joined, don't let any man divine. He said, He's, this is, here it is, it's his reading of scripture. Christ is talking to the Pharisees, and it has to be understood that way. So he will, he will make an argument, that's what he does. Um, he wrote a, tr a track on regicide, defending the execution of the king. Charles II was executed. Or Charles first. first sorry. Um, I think he just deeply believed these things, absolutely, but um, I'm sure led a lot of people astray, didn't they? <clears throat> well, it wasn't Milton, remember, I mean all of this goes back to the reformer, Luther, Wycliffe, 
Calvin, Zwingli, Huss. I mean, there's just a whole, there's so much going on, the corruptions of the church, um, the, the, way, the way the corruptions got identified with the hierarchy of the state so that people were given political motives for aligning themselves with the reformers. To turn away from the Catholic Church was, was partly political in some sense because the, 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 the state class division was corrupted. All the, all the wealth was centered in the aristocracy, the aristocracy. So the peasants wore the break off. You know, it's such a it's a time of such confusion. There's such a mixture of things going on that that ferment this. Um, and when you've got doctrines are disputed, you know that um, that here. I mean, here we are again. Luther, he takes away the hierarchy of the church and says. The, the authority is in an individual soul. He, he, he divinizes, de, deifies, he deifies the human self. That relationship you have, that private relationship, is the most important thing in your life. Nobody can question it. Where is the source of authority? It's no longer in the church, it's in the congregation. On the surface, that seems very democratic. I mean, it would move us towards a democracy. Um, we don't see the ironies in it. it once you do that, um, you can have majority rule, you can have power plays, you can have, because there's no objective reference in it. We've lost our way into the natural order. There's nothing but the subjective or arbitrary consensus among people, whatever's going to happen. And we know from experience now, they're in, churches continue to break off again and again and again and again. Is all this um, Satan's uh, temptation again? Say again. So is all this Reformation and all this Satan's temptation again? Oh, it's like you know we're back in the garden, but we're we're choosing the wrong <laughs> the wrong apple again. Well, I, I don't want, I, Lois. I, I don't want to go that far because I don't I don't want to impute evil here. That I mean I I think evil's always at work. Yeah. You know, but um, but the fall is always with us. You know, it's, um, I don't think these people, um, here, nor what I was going to say. One of the interesting things for me when I think about all of this is before this moment, it, you know, I mean, you know from certainly my background, I mean, what I, what I bring to these works, that one of the things that the classical age gives us, Homer, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, they have a sense of human restraint and human limitations. They believed in virtues. The Catholic Church still does. It's the only institution in the world. Because we, don't, we believe that nature's not fallen. We believe we're wounded. We carry concupiscence. So we're, we're asked to practice the virtues. How many people raise their kids with that understanding today? I, don't, I just don't see it happening. And moreover, one of the things that the Catholic Church stresses, because it believes that it has the object, the real presence of Christ here, is obedience. The rest of the world criticizes the Catholic Church because they say blind obedience. I mean, I think we're the least blind people in the world, honestly. And um, I mean, people can obey blindly. I mean, that can, but I don't think that's what goes on in our church. I think the resources of rationality in our church are are 
much deeper than they are anywhere else because they go to the ultimate truth of things. But, you know, I, I can't, I don't know how to pick up your question, but one of the interesting things for me about our church is that we don't take obedience for granted, I don't think. Christ was obedient. Mary was obedient. That's not something the world values. World values, I want to have my way, I'm strong, I'm sufficient, I can do it. I don't need to answer to anybody. You know, I can, so... Anyway. Can I do 9 and 10 very quickly? I'm going to do these really quickly. Um, and I, I'm sorry for taking so much time in this, but it seems to me that it's really crucial. I, I want to I just, because we don't have very much time, and I, I want to get us out on time today. Um, a couple of things to keep in mind um, going forward. These are just to keep in mind. Um, they're what I'm calling crux points. Just as we move forward, crux points. Um, at the center of the poem, it seems to me one of the most important crux points is the reason for Satan's revolt. And we read through those lines. They're the argument between him and Abdiel to me. Are, um, who says you were there? Satan is arguing that he created himself, that he's the means of his own creation. And, and um, his, his criticism of God, because God seems arbitrary, that to me is a really important point. That the passage we just read a few minutes ago where God says, why are you fussing about being solitary? I'm solitary. There was nobody there with me in the beginning. You shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, 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 keep in mind what we said about Luther and Calvin, particularly Luther, who made the, the individual self the arbiter of everything he did. There, in a sense, there's a deification, an, ele an inordinate elevation of the human person in that act. Um, and in some sense, indirectly, we're watching it played out here because Milton is coming out of that Reformation sort of ethos and taking on a knowledge that's angelic. And not only that, but he's, he's, he's doing it in such a way that we know, <laughs> this is sort of amazing, that Adam's going to pass that on to posterity. So implicitly what he's saying is our reading of Genesis will be angelic. It will come from an angel. Um, so just keep those. Those are just some crux points that I think are important. In book nine, Milton makes his last invocation. I want to look at it quick. Take a, just a very quick look there because something important is going on. Book nine opening. I now must change these notes to tragic, foul distrust and breach disloyal on the part of man revolt and disobedience on the part of heaven now, alienated distance, go down, Yet argument not less but more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles. So, he's turning from, um, I almost changed those notes to tragic. He's, he's turning from something that seemed heroic, and if, if Satan is the epic hero, 
he's fundamentally turned the whole epic tradition on its head. He's shown there are no heroic virtues. They're an illusion. It's his way of looking at Achilles. Not less than more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles. Keep going on down. Um, heroic deemed, hither, wars, hitherto the only argument heroic deemed. Up until that point, the epic tradition consisted of heroic deeds, of heroes, epic heroes, who were given these divinely appointed tasks, Achilles, Odysseus, um, Aeneas. And interesting, remember, when Satan returns, he tells his story, and all the other demons are going to get hissed, and shortly after that, they all are, they're all going to turn, be turned into um, serpents, except Satan. What, what epic hero does that line up with? Odysseus. Odysseus, most of all. Remember, he goes and he tells his story to the fire. And even Aeneas, when he comes to Dido and he tells, so the return of the hero to tell his story about his great exploits and what happens when Satan gets there, it's a bust. Heroic Dean Chief, mastery to dissect with long and tedious havoc, fabled knights in battles feigned, the better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom unsung. He's creating a new epic, and the human virtues that he's celebrating are fortitude, patience, and martyrdom. Things that have never been sung before. So the result of Adam and Eve's fall leaves us with those virtues. The whole epic tradition has now been overturned um, because of Christ, what he brings into the world. Um, Quickly, um, remember Eve had that dream, Satan whispered in her ear, and when she wakes up that morning, she's troubled, and she wants to go off by herself. Now, honestly, if we look at Eden the way it's been, I, it's, it's hard for me to see that happening. I mean, what Milton is doing is setting this up. She's gonna be off. Um, it's, it's, like a, it's like a foretaste of pride that um, she should be able to do whatever she wants. And um, Take a look at f um, 455. It's a lovely line. Satan comes to her and finds her on about line 455. But more soft and feminine, her graceful innocence, her every air of gesture or least action over overawed his malice. Once again, it seems to me, Milton gives us this very dramatic picture of, of Satan, almost divided. Um, he's a demon. He turned from God. There's nothing good in him. He, he, he's the will to destroy. How would he look at anything in the world? Milton here presents him as, as being so taken by Eve's beauty that he's overawed his malice overwrought, and with rapine sweet bereaved, his fierceness of the fierce intended brought, that space, that space the evil one abstracted stood from his own evil, and for the time remained stupidly good. I love the lines, I, to me they're extraordinary. I, I mean, only a great poet could write those lines. Is it believable that he's so overcome by her beauty that he stands outside of his evil and he's stupidly good, or his malice is overawed? 
By the way, this is this this in some ways shows you something about his view of men and women. And I'm partly with Milton on this. You already know this for those who've been around for a while. Um, what he's showing is that the beauty of a woman is almost irresistible to a man. This is the devil. We know that of, of Adam. Remember in his creation story when he saw Eve, he couldn't. He, I can't remember his words, but he said he couldn't be without her. He was so taken by her beauty. This is this is one way Milton has of showing the, the light, the lightness that man is capable of. That it's so hard for him to turn from a woman. That her power over him is so great. Um, but can we believe this of a of a devil? Um, um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to take time to look at the temptation scene. But you know, it, it goes through stages. Um, um, You eat thereof your eyes that seem so clear, yet are but dim, shall perfectly be then open and cleared, and ye shall be as gods. This is line 710. He's telling her that she will be as a god if she eats. Remember, he's a serpent and he's using reason and can speak, and so she has a reason for believing him because he, he says he ate of the tree um, and he's not dead. First thing she does when she eats of the fruit is she abases herself before the tree. Interesting. It's an act of idolatry. That even though she wants to be as a god, her first act is to base herself before the source of this thing. Um, she eats and she wonders whether she should tell Adam. Um, she even thinks that um, of the two of them taking their lives, so indirectly there's a motive of murder in her. There's a moment where she entertains having a power that she that he doesn't have, whether she should keep that, so there's an envy and pride. So after she eats, it's a riot of emotions, pride, envy, murder, um, power. She doesn't want to be without him. Um, the, the, the thought that he would be with another woman um, is murderous in itself. Um, she goes, so there are all these motives that Milton is showing in Eve. She goes and tells him what happened. Ab Adam is outraged. But faced with the prospect of losing her, he eats the apple. And in book 10, we've got God, um, the Son, coming to, um, to make judgment. Um, to turn to line in book 10, line 841, just very briefly. Adam experiences despair for the first time in his life. He sees what he's done as so, um, so ugly, so corrupt, that he identifies himself with the devil. I mean, his despair is that black. Um, about line 825 or so, Ah, why should all mankind for one man's fault thus guiltless be condemned if guiltless? But from me, what can proceed but all corrupt? That's, that is essential to the Reformation. 
that in that moment everything fell. And it's interesting how Milton describes it because not only is Adam taken to a depth of despair that he never knew before, the, the earth turns on its axis. And I want you to hold on to that because Milton, one of his ways of showing the consequences of the fall, the earth turns on its axis and it becomes a darker world. Animals now will become predatory. Animals that were at peace before will now be savage and attack each other. The earth turns so that everything about the nature of the world has been fundamentally changed. Dante's not going to do that. Da this is interesting. Dante looks at the tilt of the earth as a reason for the goodness that it receives in the, the way it's oriented in the universe. We'll see when we get there. Um, um, when, when they go to bed, then... Um, this is the moral center where this all corrupt, I think. Um, Adam says to her, line 865, Out of my sight, thou serpent, that name best befits thee with him league. He associates her with the devil, about line 930. Um, but thou against God only, she said, she's saying, to, after their fury, um, they begin to reconcile. Um, but thou against God only, I against God and thee, and to the place of judgment will return. There with my cries importune heaven, that all the sentence from thy head re removed may light on me, so cause to thee of all the woe, me only, just a, um, only just object of his ire. She wants to take the whole sin on herself, so her heart's beginning to repent. She sees that her sin is greater than Adam's, um, he says, line 945, and weary and two desires as before, so now what thou knowest not, who desires the punishment and all thyself, alas, bear thine own first. He says, you're taking too much on yourself. Um, quiet. Um, they, they go to be forgiven. Um, they'll present themselves to the judgment seat um, and fall before God and um, That'll take us into the next two books. I've got a couple of questions here because we're almost out of time, um, but I want to allow a few minutes. Um, whose sin is worse, Anna Marie's? Sorry? Depends on who you ask. Dante would probably say Eve. Wait, sorry, say the first thing. So it depends on who you ask, right? Why would Dante see Eve? Because, if I remember correctly, Dante's greatest sin was fraud. That the sin, it's one thing to, to, you, to sin yourself, but it's a worse thing to cause someone else to sin. Or, so or to do it out of an intellectual disorder, a lie. So the fact that Eve not only sin, but presented the apple to Adam and convinced him to sin as well. Dante would say that was the worst sin. Now stop copying out for a minute and stop using Dante. I want you to hear your mind. What's your mind on it? Who's the greatest sinner? Uh, Who sins greater? I, I would I would say Adam's sin is the greatest. Why? Well, I mean, in, in Milton in Milton's world, okay, Adam was, you know. 
one step or a half a step closer to God. And so he clearly knew what he was doing, and he chose Eve over God. So I would, I would say it's, it's the greatest. And it wasn't any trickery at that point. Right. I mean, he basically knew both sides of the coin and chose the wrong side. Anybody else? You agree? Yeah. So do I. So do I. He was tricked. Adam knew. So Adam his. Yeah. Um, Adam knew. So his act was more genuinely an act of disobedience in the original sin. Exactly the way I just put it. Um, what does this do? Just a, only a couple of minutes. What does this do for our reading of Genesis? We're, oh, by the way, here, here's the end. And I, I'd like everybody to keep this in mind. In 10 and 11, interesting thing is going to happen. The fall has taken place now. Adam and Eve will be escorted out of the garden, contrite. Uh, uh, oh, I know what I want. The interesting thing that I forgot, when they fight with each other after the fall, um, what happens is, is meant to be a contrast to what happened earlier. Remember in chapter 3 and 4 when we first, at chapter 4, sorry, chapter 4 and 5, when Milton first described Adam and Eve, he described them as being one. In everything they did, there was this concord, this graciousness and courtesy, and it was all natural. When they go to bed at the end of that day, the description is of Adam and Eve taking their hand, after prayer, remember there's that line that I wondered wasn't a slight of the church, that no other rights were needed, they, they, these natural rights, not, not the wrong kind of rights. Um, they say the prayers and they go into the bower and they have their nuptials, I mean, they make love with each other. Here after the fall, um, Milton describes Adam as taking her hand violently the two of them are violently at each other, and the lovemaking that they do is hateful. I mean, that's an expression of, sorry? No, what? No, it was, it was passionate, but it wasn't motives, The motives that they carry in, I mean, there's this, this is not, this is not love, but th this is not self-giving. The fall has taken place. What they're doing now is in a spirit of absolutely disordered loves. It is, I mean, passion is the way to describe it, but what's in their hearts right now is some, they're corrupt. I mean, that's the, so the lovemaking scenes are meant to stand against each other here, so don't forget that. But my, my question here, just a few minutes before we leave, um, they're, they're gonna be escorted out. This is basically Milton's treatment of Eden, of the Genesis story. So, um, what does he leave us with in the Genesis story? Can we put some of the things together before we leave this? What has he done to change? What does he do with the Genesis story as we get it in the Bible? By the way, this is partly an answer. Milton didn't take knights, you know, Arthurian knights, the heroic. He went, he went to the beginning of everything. So by taking this on, he showed the, the disorders behind all the other epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It's deeply Christian. He's doing this because what's foremost on his mind is God and Christ. So nothing shows more clearly how important this is 
for Milton than this epic. And remember, up to this point, <coughs> Satan was the heroic figure. And because he is, it casts a dark light on all the other epic heroes. He, he turns them on, Milton turns them on his head. We get here to Adam and Eve, who in the beginning were this lovely couple. Now they are, for at least a while, they were at each other's throats. They, they repent and they go to the judgment seat with contrite hearts and they receive judgment and they're let out. So a brief story on Adam and Eve themselves, and I think that's the moral center, the, the virtues that I mentioned, patience and fortitude. And that's the story of Eden. What's gonna happen before they're taken out is um, Michael's gonna come, the Archangel Michael. He's gonna take Adam and Eve I mean, eat Adam up on a mountain, and he's going to show him these visions. He's going to put a charm on Eve so she'll go to sleep. The woman won't experience this immediately the way Adam does. It's like Raphael. Remember when he came, Eve went inside of the, their bower, and she didn't hear all of this. Um, he's going to show the biblical history from the beginning, the Noah story, the... The, the, the tribes and everything leading to Christ, and we'll get this brief glimpse of tri Christ and Mary. So, the dramatic focus of the epic is Satan, Adam and Eve. What we are shown of Mary and Christ will be practically nothing. It'll be part of a story narrated. There won't be any scenes, it won't go into a passion, there won't be any drama. It'll be a vision, very briefly described. What does that do? What does that do for our understanding of Milton's understanding of good and evil, man and woman, Christ? So that will be our the major questions, I think, next week. But anybody want to tackle this thing? What? 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 What do we do with Milton's reading of the Genesis story? How does he change it? What does he do? What does he do? Anybody quick before we leave? Come on, Fred. I, 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 I finished the book, so I don't, I don't know. Oh, this, this, just leave the last two books out, just up to this point if you can. Uh, Wait on that. We'll do that next week. Anybody? Anybody? I think everybody looks at that based on their view, their lens, as you say. Um, you know, my my reading is from a science viewpoint, and it's not scientific, obviously. It's not historical. Right. Right. Um, right. So it's interpreted as a metaphor. Yep. And I don't know if I agree with all the things that have been written about it throughout history. Right. You know, lots of commentaries about Genesis from, yep. uh, from yep. the church fathers and yep. so forth. Yep. 
Yeah. Wait, just hold, if I can, a lot of truth to what Dunn said. One of the things that, um, if I can just add a note, is that one of the difficulties that Genesis presents to us is that there's a mythic aspect to it. It's a creation story. And Don's used the word myth. You know, I believe, I really believe, because I, I believe this about reading, that we have to take it literally. And yet, it's almost impossible to take it literally. We know that there's a mythic dimension to it. So what do we do with Genesis? Whatever, whatever lens we read it through, scientific or philosophic or biblical or... It presents all sorts of problems. Well, like any myth has, can have multiple interpretations. But they have to square with the text. And lots, I mean, where they don't, it's a reason for saying no. You, you have to take what's there as a starting point. If your interpretation doesn't square with that, then you're raising serious questions about how you're interpreting things. I've heard it said that, you know, the first thing that is mentioned in the uh, in day one is the creation of light. To me, that's the big bang. Yeah, right. And everything comes out of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yep. Because it's not the sun. Right. The sun's created later. So what, I mean, Don's, what, what's meant by that light? It's a, it's a good, Augustine, St. Augustine's got a really good reading on the, at the end of the Confessions. I think it's extraordinary, but sorry, Fred. Uh, just one thought is that before the fall, you know, Adam and Eve were immortal. Satan was still immortal, and so there was no concept of time for any of them. I mean, or death. You know, past, present, future, all were one and the same. So you were talking earlier about the the exchange when how did Satan, you know, know what to do with Eve to get her to concede to the eat the apple. Oh, the right. question is, did he already know the answer? Satan? Yeah. I mean, he already knew how, I mean, oh. presumably, did he already know how it was going to end? Yeah. Did he already know how it was going to end? I, here, let me, let me leave with this question, and then, because I, I, Suzanne and I have talked about this a lot. I think I mentioned this. I, I wish we had more time, because I'd say, I don't want to play a five-minute game. Really do. For a moment, I'd like everybody to get pride out of it, or vanity, and ask what it is that Satan did. You, you in your imaginations, not Milton's, you. If, if the fall hadn't taken place, because Milton sets a lot up, Eve looking in the pool, you know, the, the, the sort of imminent or foretaste or forestage of narcissism, it's, the, it's his plane on the narcissistic myth, um, narcissism myth. Um, her wanting to go out that morning on her own, the reason she gave. There are a number of things that, that um, Milton does that prepares for the fall so that it's more reasonable. If, if, we were to if we were to clean the slate and say, start over and let's just see ourselves for a game. If you take Eve as unfallen, there is no pride, there is no vanity. What did he do to, to seduce her? How, in the Bible it says, we just went over, in the Bible it says, the, the serpent comes to her and says, um, if, if your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Your eyes will be open and you will see good and evil and you'll be like God. Just your eyes will be open and you will you will know you will know good and evil. 
and you be like that. And remember, the prohibition was. Well, there's one other thing too that you will know good and evil, and you will be able to to be able to avoid evil. I don't remember that. Who says yeah, that? I, I I think that's I think that's all. You know, mm, I don't think so. Exact word. No, nope. there's an element in there. Where I don't think so. Satan's arguing with Eve. Wait, I'm in the Bible. Oh, in the Bible. Bible. Sorry. sorry, in the Bible. So in the Bible, it's. Um, your eyes will be open and you will, you will know good and evil and be like God. I'd like to come back to that. I, but anyway, that's what we've got. There's two accounts. One of them is God forms them together. The other one, he forms Adam, puts him to sleep, a rib, and then um, Eve is tempted. It describes a temptation scene where Satan comes as a serpent says. Um, what, I mean, Doc's comment was really interesting the other day. He said, the serpent is saying, God lied because he said, you won't die. So he's saying, Satan, saying, God lied, you won't die. If you eat of it, you will, you'll know good and evil, and you'll be like a God. That's all we've got. So my question is, if, if Eve's an unfallen creature, vanity and pride are not a part of her character, what does that devil do? Get Milton out for a second. What does that devil do to get her to eat that fruit. Let's stop. But I'd like you to think about it because I'd like to I'd like to pick that up for a minute if we can when we come back. Let's stop here. Well, I've got a verse here about this, what simply says in 